So thank you to Terry for inviting me um, here, and thank you in advance to Sharala, who hasn't had much time to digest our, our talks at all. Um, I'm not, I think this will become clear when I start talking, I'm not an expert on higher education policy at all, um, so I hope you forgive me uh, for that. But I, I see some really um, interesting links between hopefully what I'm going to um, present to you today and Anne and Claire's fascinating but really sensible paper, I think, um, as well. So as my title suggests, I'm going to talk about a particular type of academic mobility involving the mobility of students and programmes. But I'm also very much concerned with how Brexit portends various forms of immobility, both real and imagined. So I'm going to come back to this, this, this importance of immobility uh, a little bit later in my talk. Hopefully this works. Brexit signals a moment in how we think about the place and role of UK, of the UK um, in the world. It points up the limits to globalisation narratives, the problems with believing that we are all cosmopolitans now. Cosmopolitanism has been exposed as a particular, not a universal viewpoint. Brexit-related discourses prevalent within the British media on the lead-up to the referendum presented a sometimes insular, parochial and nationalistic view of UK affairs, which could be extended, that's what I'm going to do, uh, will extend uh, to discussions of higher education. There have been nascent signs, and this is something that Anne and Claire just, just uh, talked about, that Brexit might pave the way for a greater number rather than fewer of educational engagements with other countries outside the EU. Brexit may initiate and forge unconventional, less traditional relationships around education with a greater diversity of foreign players. Consequently, the geosocial map relating to international and transnational education might, if we do it, <laughs> be rewritten in interesting and provocative ways. I draw here in this talk on my own empirical work um, and that, on uh, that of others to consider A, why we need to revisit the idea that space is relational in thinking about international higher education post-Brexit. B, why a geosocial perspective as opposed to a geoeconomic or geopolitical perspective on international and transnational higher education might be both interesting and important, and see what a recent but overdue post-colonial perspective on international students presents us with. Finally, I want to think about how we might speculate on the consequences of Brexit for the UK's changing geographical imaginaries around international and transnational higher education. So I want to take um, this opportunity today to discuss how we might, going forward from Brexit, imagine the spaces of UK higher education, what it says about how we view internationalisation and locality, whether they are around international education, whether they are oppositional, as some people would, would um, argue, or whether the local and the international and the global are all intimately connected, which is what I believe. Um, I also want to make a more specific point about UK international HE. I want to argue that, in general, UK HEI's stances on internationalisation have been 
unacceptably pecuniary, strategic and unethical. And when I say unethical, I mean in the sense that ethics are largely missing from how universities are approaching internationalization. And I'd, I'd love you to disagree with me and say, oh no, at this university, they have an ethical policy on how they engage with their international students and with their foreign partners and so on and so on. But my experience is that this question of ethics and responsibility, these questions are largely absent from these discussions. And this is something that you talked about, um, the, the, the overemphasis on, on the mercenary, um, on the commercial aspect of internationalization. Okay. So I'm not, I'm really not going to um, talk very, I want to spend more time on other things. So I'm not going to talk very much about international students in the UK at all. This has already um, been mentioned, other than to say that we have lots of international students in the UK behind the US. As you know, we are, we are the second um, uh, most popular destination for international students. Um, but interestingly, again, most of you will know there has been a downturn um, or a sort of flattening off of international students in the past few years, particularly um, from India, as you can see. But generally, it, it's kind of stagnant, other than China. Um, and, and, and China uh, continues to kind of um, uh, maintain a momentum around internationalization. Um, uh, I was quite interested by this um, uh, quote. Uh, I was on the UK Council for International Student Affairs website, just about really um, about about this issue of the of of, of the fact that non-EU recruitment how does this work is, that, um, is virtually stagnant, decreasing, blah blah blah. Um, ministers offer attempt to form a positive figure by quoting the number of examples to Russell Group universities, which they say are on the increase. Um, but all this shows um, picture of the whole UK higher education is far from from rosy. Um, um, however, transnational education continues to grow. And I suppose that's what I've been working on most recently is, is, is transnational education. So this is a, a HESA, um, a map produced by uh, HESA of transnational students studying wholly overseas for a British qualification. And this is where the immobility side of my argument comes in, because these students, on the whole, stay at home. So they study for British qualifications without ever having been to Britain often, um, have ever haven't even left their home country, but they come out with a British degree certificate, a British qualification. I mean, the numbers are striking. So we have more students studying for transnational degree qualifications than we do international students coming to the UK. And I think that aspect of our international engagements is largely, largely forgotten, largely overlooked in discussions around internationalization um, of higher education. Um, transnational education, these are just some posters from Hong Kong um, advertising British degrees. You know, this is my London. You don't actually need to go to London to get um, a, a, a degree from London, as it were. Um, transnational education, most of you will know anyway, but it's, it's defined as formal academic programs in which learners are located in a country other than the one in which the awarding institution is based. Um, I really liked uh, this, this little um, quote here uh, from the assistant principal from Harriet Watt University who said, we don't talk about branch campuses, we are an international university with multiple locations. Um, and this is what I want to emphasize today, is about the spatial multiplicity 
of UK higher education that we need to get our heads around that. Academics need to get our heads around that. Policymakers, universities need to get around the fact that our universities are global and what that actually means ethically um, as, 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 well in, as well as in other terms. So um, we have this, this, this um, kind of um, expansion of, of UK transnational education. Uh, I'll just give you some very interesting facts here. There are only 15 countries in the UK does not offer any TNE. Um, it has grown, as I've mentioned. Most British universities intend to expand transnational education. It's part of their, um, their policy, uh, their kind of expansion policies. Um, I'm, I haven't got time to go into this today, but I'm particularly interested in the emphasis on collaborations with local partners. Because again, my discussions I've had or interviews I've done with British universities, the, the, the implications of these partnerships in terms of power imbalances, for example, have, you know, are not well thought through at all, um, if, if ever. Um, again, we've already mentioned, um, um, Claire and Anne already mentioned the kind of imbalance in subject areas. Um, that tend to be prioritised when we're thinking about this type of um, education. Okay, there are many ethical questions that have not been addressed by HEIs as they, as they engage in internationalisation, either by bringing in and monitoring international students or by offshoring their educational activities, thereby deflecting the immigrant problem away from their doors. Indeed, transnational education might seem like a neat solution to the fact that UK, the UK continues to include international students within its immigration um, statistics. And international students are possibly being put off um, applying to study in the UK by the government's very anti or seemingly anti-international student and anti-immigrant um, stance. Uh, before I discuss some of the ways in which we might attempt to conceptualise international HE going forward, I want to give a brief example of some of the attendant problems attached to internationalising HE through my own empirical work, which was a project. Um, so I'm going to. How long have I been? Um, Approximately. Oh, okay. You're going to get access to these slides. I'm going to really skip over them very, very quickly. Um, if you're interested in this project, though, I've published a number of papers on it, and you can just email me, and I'll just send you the links to them. Um, no problem at all. So um, the project was funded by uh, the ESRC and um, Research Grants Council in Hong Kong. Basically, we were interested in so-called non-local degrees offered by British universities in Hong Kong. It was very much a qualitative study. What we wanted to do is actually give some voice to the students that are studying for British qualifications abroad. Um, because there, there's, there's a lot of numbers and figures out there, but there was very few um, actual in-depth qualitative uh, uh, projects at the time when we in, um, undertook this project. Um, these programs, transnational education, have developed as part of the expansion of Christian education in Hong Kong over the last 20 years. Um, but interestingly, maybe won't come as a surprise to you, these programs are for the people who did not perform too well locally. These are the students who could not get into uh, local universities um, as much as they would have liked to. Um, so they did not meet the local university's requirements. All they could do was study for a British qualification. That was their only option um, for getting a degree. Um, in Hong Kong, it, there, you know, there's a predefined pass rate for getting into university when you sit the university entrance exams. 
um, which is very low. I think it's about 17, 18% of all young people can actually access a, a, a degree a position in a local university. Um, and uh, the, the big problem when we did this research that the students and graduates of British qualifications studying in Hong Kong faced um, was the fact that nobody in Hong Kong recognises these degrees as degrees. So they don't have that local domestic recognition. And, and um, I was quite flabbergasted when we talked to British universities that they did, some knew this and some didn't. <laughs> and I just wonder, how can you be so ignorant of, of the local context in which you are operating? If you're going to provide qualifications to students, they are your students and you have a responsibility to to know as much as you can, what are you, what are you providing them with? You know, what are, what are they purchasing, if we want to use that kind of um, uh, commercial type language? You know, what, what are your students buying from you? Um, you know, they are identical qualifications to the ones obtained in the UK. It's just they don't travel in the same way. You know, international education does not mean the same thing in this place as it does in another place. Um, so the students that we interviewed experienced in different ways um, a lack of recognition and a, a sort of an absence um, of recognition. Um, for example, they were treated differently. They were attached to local universities, uh, many of them, um, but they were treated differently from local students. So for example, quite simply, they couldn't get the same number of books um, out of the library. Um, they, didn't, they didn't pay... Um, fewer fees, but they, they still had these reduced privileges. And when I asked one of the local administrators why, she said, it's not to do with fees, it's who they are. They are not university students. So these are, these are students on British degree programs in Hong Kong, not seen locally as university students. So what are they? Um, indeed. Uh, they have no government recognition, so all, all this disclaimer has to appear on all... Um, on information provided locally about these programs. Uh, you know, it's up to employers if they want to recognize these degrees or not. We don't recognize them. So if, as this, this graduate says, for civil servants' jobs, you need to hold a degree. If you want to go into the civil service in Hong Kong, as many of these students um, wanted to, they could not use their British degree qualification to enter the civil service locally. Um, so they were treated, as the previous said, before your top of degree, in my case, it'd be a higher diploma. I could only use my high diploma, I could not use my degree identity to apply. Also, they suffer from a lack of social recognition. Someone aged 50 plus, our parents, they do not recognize these are degrees. They think only local universities are real. But I mean, this perception is actually a real perception. It has real material consequences for these young people. They would only think local universities are real, even though my parents do not think I completed a degree course. In their eyes, it's not a degree. My parents said I'd lied to them about studying a degree. So that's a, that's a very, very brief overview of what we found, obviously. I'm skipping over a lot of things here, but I just wanted to give you a, a flavour of, of what alarm bells went off for us as the researchers. Sorry, I didn't recognise Maggie Leung at, at Utrecht University as my co-researcher uh, on this project and my co-author. Um, so Maggie and I um, were a bit concerned by you know, some of these findings, and we put them to British universities um, during our project. And uh, what was the response of, of them to this? Well, I've just put um, not great. <laughs> it did vary, and again, I haven't got time to, to, to kind of go into the details of how these how responses did vary. And some were more concerned than others. Um, but the question, the important question today, for what I'm trying to, to kind of get at conceptually, is you know, oh gosh, sorry, going back. 
How do you, HOs, imagine their overseas students, if at all? You know, how do they think about them? How do they perceive them? Um, do they deal with questions of ethics and responsibility vis-a-vis -vis their overseas students? Okay, so in, in the probably 10 minutes or so that I've got left, I just want to just very briefly uh, flesh out these ideas about how we might reconceptualise uh, our views of distant students, whether they're distant students that come to our university campuses or distant students that we, we um, have responsibility for overseas. So I want to discuss how international education could involve a reimagined space in terms of relationality and really talk about Doreen Massey's work. Some of you will be familiar with her work. Um, she's a wonderful geographer who recently sadly passed away. Um, so she's published a number of papers and books on how, we, how and why we need to think about space relationally. Um, it's very, very important work. Um, I want to touch on re recent ideas around geosocial relations and transnational education. Well, actually, very few people have, have written on geosocial and transnational education. It's more about how we think about transnationalism, so, so migration and movement of people. And then, again, very briefly, not doing justice, so that should say three, um, post-colonial and decolonial imaginaries, um, and how, the, how important these are for how we think about our students. And I say these are our students because I think really they are our students. Um, so begin to begin um, uh, with Doreen Massey's ideas. Um, she's written, if space is a product of practices, trajectories, interrelations, we make space through interactions at all levels, from the so-called local to the so-called global, then those spatial identities such as places, regions, nations, and the local and the global must be forged in this relational way too, as internally complex, essentially unboundable in any absolute sense, and inevitably historically changing. And this, I would argue, has implications for how we think about the internationalization of higher education. She's written specifically about notions of care, ethics, care, and responsibility. And she argues that we tend to see responsibility in this kind of Russian doll sense. So we care, first of all, for the people who are physically nearest to us, and we kind of work outward. So when we get so far in the distance, you know, so far, um, so far away from where we are physically, then our sense of responsibility for those people, those individuals, tends to diminish. Now, it would be really interesting to have a debate, discussion about how maybe social media and um, the growth in, in and the development of the internet has possibly changed this, actually, this spatial imaginary. But where, certainly when Massey was, was writing this, you know, these, these uh, kind of social media was very much in its infancy. So she says there are many reasons for that territorial, locally-centred Russian doll geography care responsibility. Nonetheless, it seems to me it's crucially reinforced by the persistence of the refrain that, that posits local place as the seat of genuine meaning and global space as in consequence without meaning as the abstract outside. Now, I say, I, I've probably got, how long have I got? <laughs> um, oh, yeah, just under 10 minutes. Okay, that's fine. Um, so, I'm really not doing her, her ideas justice here, other than to say that, um, that what she points out so brilliantly uh, is that we need to think about um, relationships that are forged locally that have global ripple effects. Um, and that includes, I think, um, 
what is happening through the internationalisation of higher education. Um, the second kind of idea that I think is, is quite um, interesting for understanding post-Brexit, uh, in the internationalisation of higher education, is a geo-social understanding of international education. Now, Elaine Ho, um, in a recent paper, in a special issue of geopolitics, if you're interested, there's a number of papers published on, on the geosocial. Um, she argues that geopolitical, and I've put in brackets, and geoeconomic significance of education and the concomitant power geometries populated in the transnational circle of knowledge um, are significant, but that we tend to be, or universities tend to be, our politicians tend to be preoccupied by the geopolitical or the geoeconomic. Um, and, and one thing that Anne and Claire said that resonant, resonated with me very strongly, and, uh, and one thing I wanted to emphasize, is what the geosocial is about, is about the importance of people and individuals, and how people and individuals um, create these bigger uh, frameworks, uh, basically. Um, so uh, Mitchell and Callio highlight the theoretical value of the geosocial as a way of conceptualizing the contemporary constitution of subjects and spaces within transnational relations. Um, let me just... So the final um, conceptual point that I want to spend a little, a little tiny bit more time on, really, is, is this idea of post-colonial ethics in international education. Now, um, Claire Madge, uh, Pavati Raghuram and Patricia Noxola have written a s several papers on this, so I'm not claiming this to be my work at all. I just greatly admire it and respect it. Um, and their papers really are, are looking at... There has a specific paper, if you're interested, on international students and engaged pedagogy. So they're using um, Bell Hooks's idea of engaged pedagogy to think about you know, how we um, talk about, how we interact with, importantly, uh, international students. But their paper is very much on international students coming to the UK, being present in UK classrooms, whereas I'm trying to understand how this idea might apply to students that aren't present, students that are immobile, students that we don't see, actually, on a day-to-day -day basis, if at all. But actually, we should still care for, is what, what I would argue. Um, so there's just a, an, a couple of references for you to, to look at. So in one of their papers, Claire Madge and colleagues ask, do UK higher education institutions eschew discourses that seek to present the internationalisation of UKHE as a neutral experience within normalising conceptions of internationalisation? Instead, moving towards a more layered understanding that highlights the connections between the geographical, historical, political, economic and cultural spheres in order for engaged pedagogy to emerge. Um, my impression, but I'd obviously like your views on this because I have a very sort of small, um, I've done a very small empirical project on this really, is that, um, is that on the whole they don't, on the whole they they do tend to present internationalization as this um, kind of you know, neutral experience without these ethical dimensions. But I think we need to ask, well, what if university, universities did highlight these connections? What if they did discuss these <coughs> connections between the geographical, the historical, the political, the economic, and the cultural? You know, what kind of possibilities emerge if universities begin to think in that way, begin to talk in that way, begin to interact? in that way. Could they do it? I think that's another thing that we need to think about within this 
prevalent neoliberal agenda, is it actually feasible and possible for universities to take this view? And this comes back to your point about the public university. You know, there, there's a, they should be, but can they? You know, is, is, it, is it feasible? So the UK government is committed to increasing education exports, uh, Joe Johnson has argued, from 18 billion 2012 to 30 billion by 2020. And uh, the British Council and Universities UK, which has already been mentioned, argue that transnational education in particular has the potential to, now I think this is just such a provocative statement, has the potential to rebalance the global higher education market, allowing more students to study in their own countries and reducing the costs to developing countries in terms of foreign exchange and brain drain. It can build capacity both at home and overseas, a key driver for universities offering TNE and partners and countries hosting TNE alike. Um, the question is, you know, do we agree with that? Is, is this actually, five minutes, brilliant. Is this actually happening? Um, does transnational education have this potential? I think if we run with it, it could have this potential, but we have to do something with it rather than let it just happen. I would argue that UK universities generally have literally no clue, or very little clue, I should say, of the impact of their forays into TNE. Um, the impact that they're ha having on local social dynamics, local labour markets, local experiences of young people undertaking their programmes. They do not generally understand the local context in which they're operating in, other than to say that you might have a, a, an informed individual within that institution that knows quite a lot, you know, has these social connections, social links with this place overseas, may go, maybe goes there a lot. The institution as a whole generally doesn't understand um, what it's doing, you know, what kind of impact it's having, what effect it's having. Um, in terms of bringing this back to post-colonial ethics and responsibility, uh, the relations that transnational education produce suggest a complicated rendering of global responsibility. You know, what does it mean to undertake transnational education responsibly and ethically um, to think about the relationships that universities and staff within universities are forging with distant places, if we think of, think of it in, in post-colonial terms, and times as well, you know, historical times, that we, we continue our practices into the present, and it's important to kind of uncover that and um, discuss that. Uh, the multi-sided, multi-scalar character of international study challenges simplistic dichotomies of here there and unsettles a spatial imagination away from thinking about the international and about pedagogy solely in relation to largely unmarked European, American, Australian centres, and instead explicitly locates itself as coming out of and to multiple locations. Um, and that's basically where I want to end, really, is how, post-Brexit, how can we um, think more about, how can we conceptualise, um, how can we bring to the fore uh, the position of the UK or UK higher education uh, coming out of multiple locations, being multiply located in different global sites. Um, and just to kind of make um, a rather strong statement to end, I would suggest that it is unacceptable 
uh, for universities um, and staff within universities to deny, firstly, the sense of responsibility for obviously all students, um, but tends to be we regard our domestic students differently from our international students and also from particularly from our students that live and study overseas. Um, and secondly, it's unacceptable to deny a sense of responsibility for the spaces within which UKHRs are intimately connected through internationalisation. And I'd just like us to kind of, through our own work, to kind of expose, continually expose those spaces and those interrelations and those connections. Because it's only through exposing those connections that we can be truly ethical in our practices. That's the end. Thank you.